We actually have a very formalized, we call it the, the, the win-loss feedback. If somebody finds a, a product blocker or something, we'd have a place where we can go enter that, you know, put the value of the opportunity. What was the real product blocker here? And then the product team designates uh, one of their senior product managers uh, to go through that list and, you know, tell us that, you know, this is on the roadmap. Gee, this is something we hadn't come across before. It sounds important or that one's just never coming. So <laughs> get over it. This is Presales Heroes from Vivin, the world's first platform for presales. Today we're talking to Jeff Bean, who has been an account executive at Fast Growth Startup Financial Force, but currently runs a presales team at Microsoft. Jeff tells us a single thing that makes him glad he went back to presales after carrying a bag, and he also talks about the processes, or lack of them, that exist in both small and large companies to help presales affect the product roadmap. Hi, I'm Greg Howard, and I'm talking to Jeff Bean, Technical Sales Director at Microsoft. I'm in Smoke Choke, San Francisco, and I assume Jeff is calling from a much nicer place, South Carolina, although I have to ask to verify. Jeff, is is South Carolina nice today or choked by forest fires? No, it's nice today. We actually have a break from our usual 90 degree uh, temperatures and 70% humidity. It's uh Fall has rolled in right in on right on time this Labor Day weekend, so it's been great. Jeff, let's start by finding out your hero origin story. Um, tell right, you've done a couple of things in your career, including uh, been an account executive. Right now, you're running a pre-sales team at Microsoft. How did you How did you get into pre-sales? Uh, probably like everybody else, I think that's been doing this for a while by accident. Um, I was an ERP uh, systems consultant in the '90s, kind of doing the road warrior stuff, getting on a plane on Mondays, coming home on Fridays, and after seven or eight years and a couple kids, it came a bit of a untenable solution. So uh, somebody suggested pre-sales, which I didn't have really a, a clue what it was, but they said, remember when you would tell people about how our software works, you, you kind of have a, a knack for explaining the complicated and simple terms. Uh, that's kind of what we do in pre-sales. I was like, sounds interesting. <laughs> Started from there and then obviously, uh, you know, smoothed a lot of the rough edges and learned the the true uh, craft that, that pre-sales is and have uh, decided that uh, that's pretty much where I always wanted to be after that. It feels like a lot of people learn that craft as they go along as they, they maybe had good mentors, which hopefully you did, but there's not a lot of super established best practices and foundations, although that's starting to change a little bit and people tend to learn as they go. Yeah, that's why I said. I think anybody that's done this for a while, you did it accidentally, whereas now now it's a rather intentional career for many people. Tell me a bit about moving back and forth between, you know, carrying a bag and, and doing pre-sales, which I know you've done. I think a lot of uh, people either think about doing it or have done it. Kind of what were some of the reasons you uh, jumped tracks a few times? Yeah. Um, so pretty much only did it once after doing pre-sales and then leading pre-sales teams for, for 10 or 15 years. Um, you know, I had thought about the idea of being an account executive, carrying a bag um, for, for a couple different reasons. One, you know, change of pay and be the, the challenge. And, you know, probably third and probably, probably the worst reason was monetary difference. You know, I think there's a, at least a perception by all pre-sales people that the, the account execs make all the big bucks and how hard can it be? Because we all know that the pre-sales people do all the work anyways, right? So uh, did, you just, did you just prove that perception or is that turned out? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, after you, you know, gone and determined what the requirements are and delivered a killer demo and all that good stuff. I mean, what else is there left to do, right? So 
Um, I tried it. Um, and I'm not ashamed to say that I definitely had my best W2 ever uh, during those three or four years. And I can also say that I probably had some of my lower W2s ever. So um, it, it's a, it's a different animal. It's a different beast. And, uh, it, you know, and I'm sure there are some people that make that transition very well from, from pre-sales to sales and, and, and find that, um, you know, a, quite a, an enjoyable change and in, in, uh, shift in direction or the career path. I, for myself, just, I'm not good at picking up the phone call and doing that, uh, you know, prospecting, even though we have some great business development engines out there and, and things like that. But, you know, at the end of the day, you still, um, you know, whether you want to adopt the challenger sales methodology and all these other things, uh, you've got to pick up the phone and you've got to talk to somebody and convince them that that's worth their time to continue to speak with you. So um, I mean, if, if it makes you feel any better, I know account executives have been doing it for 20 years who are still not good at picking up the phone <laughs> during that call. I mean, it's amazing how few of them are, are good at that. You know, and my idea of a good close was you just saw a great demo. So you ready to buy? <laughs> so wow. obviously not a closer either. So I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I believe that. Uh, like, what, I mean, the reality is, I mean, it's true. A lot of the great pre-sales people do a lot of the selling and uh, it, you know, it, it's obviously, it's a lot more than just doing the, the demo and a lot of them get very much into the mechanics of the selling process. So, but it sounds like you got out of your system. Yeah, it did. Yes. And uh, fortunately, uh, Microsoft uh, welcomed me back uh, into a pre-sales role. So I was happy to uh, to accept it. So I know that you, you know, one of the things we talked about is even though you were an account executive at Financial Force, which is a, you know, very uh, fast growth uh, company, uh, it's, I, you know, it's, it's been around for several years, but it's up to 700 uh, people. And I think it just recently got a big round of funding. So it's, you know, it's, it's on the up and up. You you were an account executive there, but you wrote, you worked very closely with the pre-sales team. And of course you have incredible pre-sales experience. So one of the things we're, I was hoping to talk to you about was kind of your view of pre-sales at, you know, large companies and small companies. Companies and, and kind of what the difference is. And, and maybe we can just sort of, you know, talk about your initial thoughts on what pre-sales look, looks like at a company like Financial Force versus Microsoft. I mean, if you were going into pre-sales at a, at a late stage or, or an early stage startup, what do you think you would find? Yeah. And I did actually um, consider the the option of, of moving into pre-sales uh, at Financial Force as opposed to uh, just moving on doing something different. I think one of the, probably the biggest difference is the pace of change um, and, the, and the amount of structure. I mean, when I joined Financial Force, I was, I think, still under 50 employees. And, you know, like you said, uh, over 700 when I, when I left. So just- Sorry, uh, it, was under, it was under 50 employees when you joined? Yeah, I think I was forty-seven oh, wow. or forty-eight, something like that. So you're you're there for that whole that whole growth uh, curve. That's an, that's great. Yeah, and and it was a wild ride, and you know, uh, you you kind of uh, build the airplane as it's going down the runway in many cases, right? And you know, the structure isn't necessarily there, but you have so many good people that are dedicated towards. Uh, you know the success of the of the project, the organization, the company, and all that. Um, that everybody does really put their best foot forward and kind of looks uh, overlooks, if you will, some of the the warts and um, shortcomings of whether it be the product, the process, or anything else. 
You know, I, I think uh, a big difference would be, you know, we, we uh, have more metrics, you know, in a big company and you know, a lot of things that obviously Vivid measures and things like that. But, you know, pre-sales ratio or, or I should say uh, account exec ratio to pre-sales, things like that. I mean, you could have, you know, when I started, I pretty much had a dedicated uh, pre-sales uh, person to work with. Six months later, that poor guy supporting five reps. Right. Uh, you know, just because of the growth and, you know, it is a lot easier to to find and train up account execs than it is pre-sales people. So you kind of have that lag, lead lag process going on all the time there. You know, it catches back up and all of a sudden you go through that next, you know, ramp up and uh, things like that. So I think that's one of the things. Um, I think another big difference is the closeness between pre-sales and the product team. Uh, in many cases, I can remember either preparing for uh, a presentation, a demo or something with the, the pre-sales uh, rep that I worked with. Um, and we'd have questions. We go right to the, the person that wrote that app, part of the application, you know, and they maybe even debug on the fly or, or tell us what's coming in the next release. And, you know, obviously in a, in a larger company, that's a lot more structured and, you know, it would be highly disruptive to have dozens, if not hundreds of pre-sales people reaching directly back into the product team for uh, for those type of uh, resources or, or, or help in, in those areas. Yeah. So jumping on that for a second, exactly what you said, and this is certainly my experience in a small startup, if you have a problem with the, the product and the, and the sales uh, communication, you simply go to the engineer and you tell them what you want or you slack the person. Uh, at Microsoft or at, at any large company, at Vivian, we find that the process is just all over the board. I'm, I'm curious whether how if you have any sense of how Microsoft taps the intelligence of sales and pre-sales to inform the product if, if, if they do so at all. Yeah, actually, uh, it's something that we've gotten pretty good at over the last couple of years. And, you know, I'm I'm speaking just for the business applications group. I mean, obviously, we're just just tiny multi-billion-dollar um, business line inside of Microsoft. <laughs> um, it's uh, we actually have a very formalized. We call it the the, the win-loss feedback. Um, mm-hmm. And so if somebody finds a, a product blocker or something, we'd have a place where we can go enter that, you know, put the value of the opportunity. What was the real product blocker here? And then we have people on my team that take leads in different functional areas. So somebody that focuses just on those product blockers that are associated with finance versus supply chain or manufacturing or something like that. And then the product team designates uh, one of their senior product managers uh, to go through through that list and you know tell us that you know this is on the roadmap gee this is something we hadn't come across before it sounds important um, or you know that one's just never coming so <laughs> get over it uh, but uh, it is a very formal process we meet once a month um, on it and uh, it, it's it's good because it keeps that it, it helps build that bridge between um, you know the feet on the street uh, between the pre-sales people and uh, the folks that are back there creating the next uh, generation of the application yeah that that sounds super mature I'm curious when you say you're they're able to prioritize the the product feedback by um, blocker to a deal? Are they able to actually prioritize and sort that by like revenue opportunity? So they see what the revenue impact is on either acknowledging or not acknowledging that technical blocker? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, obviously, we you can't have deal-driven development, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and every and every and every person in the field thinks their deal is the most important. So uh, you've got to reconcile that. 
but uh, you know, it, it's kind of one of those things. If uh, maybe something isn't on on the radar, uh, but they see two or three or four opportunities that seem to have the same either blocker or competitive shortcoming, you know, that gets reprioritized or higher prioritized than, than maybe it was. Yeah, exactly, and that's that's what we see at, at Vivin too is is looking to see the number of opportunities they have the same technical blocker and then correlating that to a, to a revenue um, uh, possibility and then then saying okay, this is more important than this one isn't. And actually, oh yeah, actually, Greg is is quite often the product team will come to us and say, "Hey, we're thinking of this because it may give us a you know a, a unique uh, selling uh, capabilities or or something." You know, do you guys ever see this need? And you know, we'd be like, "Oh yeah, that's right. You know, we don't see it a lot, but that'd be helpful." Or I have no idea why you came up with that thought. <laughs> and then looking the reverse of that, because honestly, that sounds like a great process. Did, did you see the sort of? I mean, I don't want to speak poorly about your, you know, former mother's ship, but I mean, it's, it's, it's true at startups that a lot of the feature development gets done exactly to your point, the loudest voice in the room, right? And there's not so much a process for systematically taking in the, the product feedback, but just whoever's kicking over the table the most. Was that ever an issue? Only for the, the largest, largest customers. I mean, you're always trying to get those marquee accounts, right? Those, those billboard logos. And that might be, you know, even in co-dev, right, in some cases where, yes, we were going to get there, but um, just wasn't a priority. But if you guys are willing to invest here, then we're willing to reprioritize uh, some of our development uh, scenarios. So I'd love to to talk about, you know, just based on what you experienced at Financial Forest during your long journey there, as well as kind of what you've just seen earlier in your career. If you were to give advice to somebody coming into uh, you know, an earlier, even late stage startup where there's not going to be a lot of foundations, not a lot of processes, certainly not the maturity of a Microsoft. What do you think their their playbook should be? What do you think they should generally focus on first, knowing that they're not going to find a lot waiting for them when they get there? Find that good mentor. Nobody <laughs> <laughs> that's going to help because, you you know, you you become chief cook and bottle washer pretty quick otherwise. And if you don't have somebody that can, you know, whether it be give you a little bit of a uh, backstop or something like that, then I, I think you're going to flounder. I mean, even, even the best self starters um, that are out there, in, and I'm not sure you see a lot of people, at least in business applications, you know, for CRM, ERP, things like that. You, you kind of have to know business a little bit, right, to be effective. You don't see a lot of people coming right out of, of school, maybe some MBA programs uh, that become pre-sales. You, you're going you're to be learning fast and frequently um, if you're moving into that startup, but there's also a, a certain element of excitement and uh, you know intrigue and all about that, and I, I think everybody should go on that ride at one point in their career. That's a great. It's a great point about uh, having know a little bit about business in order to just to kind of create a toehold in, in a space where there might be, not be a lot of foundation. When you think about kind of your own experience in in, in pre sales as well as at, at startups. What do you think are just sort of the basic fundamental metrics you even need to kind of guide your ship in a place like that? What are the the numbers you have to be able to kind of grasp onto and, and be able to absorb? I think it's uh, I think a lot of pre-sales people think of themselves as as a know-it-all. Um, you know, you know the most about something, but I think you really need to be a learn-it-all, right? Because at at the end of the day, you're trying to solve a customer's problems um, and convince them that your solution is the is the best way to to fix that problem. So, you know, really, God, it's probably been how many times this has been overused, but you really have to be a good listener, um, and, and you don't have to be an articulate speaker. <laughs> a lot of people think that uh, to be a good pre-sales person, you got to have the you know the silver tongue and really sound so polished and everything. But I mean, I had some of the best, I had some of the best pre-sales people I've worked. 
work with are just classic introverts because they ask their really probing, intelligent questions, sit back and just let somebody go. And uh, sometimes I've said the best response you can give to somebody is absolute silence because then they just keep going on more. And so so I think listening and then just you you have to have a kind of an innate curiosity, right? Uh, Whether it be curious about learning more about the customer, learning more about the product, the industry, whatever. You know, if you don't have that constant desire to learn um, and be curious, then I, I don't think pre-sales is probably the best place for you. One of the things we talked about in our earlier conversation was particularly in the startup environment, how communication was super important. Maybe you can talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that, that's uh, you know, things move a little bit faster, I think, um, in, in that environment. And, and they, things become more critical. I mean, nobody wants to lose a deal. Um, and certainly our, our compensation can be affected if not. But I mean, company success can be affected a little bit more when you lose a deal in a startup, right? Um, so you've got to have that that constant uh, communication, kind of whether it be simply between the AE and the, uh, and the pre-sales person, or if it's between the product team, as we were just talking about, or even executive leadership, um, you know, it's, it manifests itself in different ways. I mean, one of the things I like when you're when you do have a strong alignment between the the, the pre-sales uh, and, and salesperson, it's almost like that quarterback wide receiver connection where you know Peyton Manning or sort of Tom Brady can just look off to the right and you know and and all uh, automatically you know the receiver knows where to go and the ball's going to end up there, right? You, you build that type of relationship when you have that and that unspoken communication. Uh, as I, I, love, to- I love that. I love that analogy. I've seen I've seen that many times. It's it's amazing to watch that chemistry when people know each other, they know each other's strengths and weaknesses, and then the meeting just almost runs itself. Oh, and you become um, you, know, you you are the feet on the street, the 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 ears of what's happening out there. In, in customer feedback, uh, I think there's. Uh, I was reading sometime that uh, you know fighter pilots spend more time debriefing than they do preparing for a flight. You know because nothing survives the first. You know, no plan survives the first uh, battle, right? Um, but you learn more by the debrief, and so you know coming back from a presentation, demo, whatever. And communicating with the uh, the product team, with marketing or anybody else about you know what was the customer's perception of how you positioned yourself, you know how did they respond to certain aspects of the of the product demo. Jeff, thinking about your your work at uh, Microsoft at the moment, uh, you know just kind of shifting gears a bit. What do you think? What do you what are kind of challenges are you facing as a as a pre sales leader there? And and you know how are you? Kind of working to to surmount them. I think it's uh, as Microsoft has uh, evolved to a full cloud company. Um, you know, we still have a, a perception and market perception sometimes to to overcome uh, about uh, you know being whether whatever you know past legacy applications or software. Um, so we focus a lot, not so much just on you know the the capabilities of the product and things like that, but really embracing the digital transformation aspect of what would be associated with somebody moving from their current solution to a cloud based one. You know that's a it becomes a, a, a challenge because again I, I think pre sales uh, people have a tendency to really want to focus on the product and we're gonna we're not gonna uh, be able to communicate our value if we don't really embrace um, the, the why the customer is doing this, not just what they are doing. That's a really interesting point. So you're having to kind of coach your team members to 
do more storytelling around digital transformation and not simply try to get to the the point solution that's going to get them there. They have to understand what they're trying to accomplish and what the impact is. Yeah, exactly. In fact, you know, we've just, we started to do fiscal year here in the last couple of months and we always get the question from the people that help support us, you know, what do you need next year? And they, you know, the first thing they start thinking about are, you know, deep um, product academies and all. We're asking for, just like you said, we, hey, can you, can we get a class in storytelling? You know, can, can, how do we become better storytellers? Uh, we've adopted some whiteboarding classes and things like that, especially in this uh, age of doing uh, remote uh, presentations and demos. Uh, so those type of things go a long way. So we've been asking for a lot more of the soft skills as opposed to, you know, deep product knowledge and product training. Because that's you're going to get that anyways. I mean, it's it's going back to a thread we talked about earlier in this conversation. I mean, it's really interesting. What's what's your take on? So I, mean, I totally agree with you. Pre-sale should be able to tell that story. But what's your what's your feeling on on you know the account executive telling that story? Uh, what, what where's the responsibility lie when you're having a conversation at that level? I think it's the the account exec to be able to initiate that conversation. Um, you know, they've obviously got to be able to spark some interest to get somebody to, to pay attention to you. So, I mean, they certainly have a, a role, but, and you mentioned it, that pre-sales is really sales. I think a lot of people forget that when I mean, we go by all different types of names, technical specialists, solution consultants and all that, but it is pre-sales. You are selling. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, it is incumbent upon this role to be able to advance the opportunity forward. <laughs> Don't care how good you are on the feeds and speeds and product capabilities. If you can't convince the customer that this solution solves your problem, you're not doing your job. Vivin has a, a theory, which you don't have to weigh in on, so you don't make any enemies on your side. But we have a theory that because of the way that products are becoming more sophisticated and the need for specialists is so uh, increasingly prevalent that pre-sales is going to become more important in the sale than the transactional account exec. Uh, because when you start to get in these conversations, you have to have somebody who understands both the product and the high level story. So I, I'm almost getting a sense of that from what you're saying, but uh, you know, you, you may have a different different view of it. No, I, I definitely agree there um, that you, you, you have to be able to play both those roles. And the nice thing is, you know, pre-sales can be a non-threatening sales process, right? I mean, you're you're generally connecting, depending what type of product you're working with, with, with business or, or technical users in a non-threatening sales mode and convincing them that this this is the answer to their problems. And if you're doing it right and showing the value that's implicit in your product, then you, you're doing your job. Jeff, do you have any interesting uh, plans for the weekend? Yeah, actually, I'm starting a two-week vacation. <laughs> uh, well, so hopefully last ago. I have not taken a two-week vacation in years, so um, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. So first, we're just going to the beach for two weeks. So um, I've got uh, I've got five books lined up, as well as uh, you know, you can't really check out from work. So I got some ideas I want to continue working on, but you know, to be able to do it with the absence of the daily grind will be interesting. Wi-Fi on the beach that doesn't that doesn't sound like the right the right recipe. Well, it's more like the uh, the beach house overlooks a um, you know, part of the uh, intercoastal waterway. So I can I can see sitting out on the on the deck with something cold and um, working working that way. Jeff, that was awesome. Thanks for talking to Pre Sales Heroes today. I enjoyed it. Thanks for asking. Mm-hmm.